Okay. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we implore you to hear our prayers and to lighten the darkness of our hearts by your gracious visitation. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Brian or Anna or Emma, there is still a spot right here. You don't have to live in exile on the pew. <laughs> Sitting at my right hand is a great thing, but no pressure. Just as a reminder, today is the last catechumenate that we have for two weeks, not three, <laughs> because the schedule has a date on there that is not a Saturday. So I think it's the 9th. January 9th that we're back, I think. So we'll take two weeks off for Christmas and for New Year's, and then we'll be back at it. So today, hopefully, we'll get through everything we need to so we don't have to review when we get back. We can dive into all the new stuff. As always, there's coffee and treats. Help yourselves. Because the more you eat, is the less that I have to. Not that it's not good, but we do have quite a bit at home. <laughs> So, uh, yes, very good. You've had a week to ruminate. Do you have any questions about anything we talked about last week? Some of, some of today is a little bit of review from last week because it's continuing on because we didn't finish everything. But now's your chance. Otherwise, you don't get to ask any questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. If you have anything that pops up, just uh, interrupt the class. And if you're watching live uh, and you have a question, just type it into the chat. And uh, I'll try to make sure I'm paying attention so I can answer it. Also, uh, there were, seemed to be some trouble getting the handouts from the website last week. So if you're watching this live, I have the link to where all of the handouts are right on the live stream video. So all you have to do is click that link and it'll take you right where you need to be to find the handouts. There should be three handouts for today. It is lesson three. But speaking of handouts, if you remembered and you brought back that handout, which I didn't. <laughs> all right, hold on. I'm setting a bad example. like I put mine somewhere that I don't remember, so I'll go by memory from this. Would you like to look at that one? I would love to, thank you. <laughs> okay, remember, this is, this is what we call, well, it's what I call the hand of blessing, because it's the hand that I make while giving the blessing, but there's more to it just than that. It's this, it spells the first and last letter of Jesus, and the first and last letter of Christ in the Greek. Uh, Jesus Christus. Those little things that look like C's are uh, capital sigmas, which is an S. This is, yeah, the, the language of icons can sometimes be hard to read, but if you go and you look at that icon of Christ, 
that's hanging up right in the narthex. You can see that he's making this same hand and he's like this. And uh, these letters are up around on the icon. So this spells the name of Jesus. You also see in many, if you look at a crucifix and you pay really close attention, there are two details that you notice. First is how his hands look and the second is that his head is always to one side. His head is facing one direction on purpose. It's always to the right. There are two theories behind that. I won't tell you which one is my opinion. I'll let you just enjoy both of the theories. The first is that Christ's head is to the right because it's pointed toward the thief that repented. Uh, the second is that his head is pointed toward his mother and the apostle and evangelist St. John. But it's almost always pointed to the right. That's the tradition. The other thing, though, is his hands. His hands will almost always look like this, or they'll be sort of like this. This is kind of the lazy man's hand of blessing, because it's easier to do this than to do this. It's, it's, it looks like a lazy hand, but it, you have to practice it to make sure that you make it look like it's lazy, because it isn't. <laughs> so anyway, this spells the name of Jesus, so that when I speak a blessing to you, or if you go to a funeral, and I put my hand on the casket, and then bless the casket, it's like this, because it's the actual physical name of Jesus. What does Jesus' name looks, look like when it is physical? It looks like this. So, when I make the sign of the cross over you, it's made with this sign, because it is the name of Jesus that, is being, that has been put on you and is physically being placed on you. Uh, the other thing that is important about this hand, in addition to its reminder of baptism and what baptism is and does, which we're going to talk all about that today, the importance of the name, which is why I wanted you to bring this back and keep it in your memory. But the other thing is that this, it, it teaches, like everything, it, it teaches something about Jesus. So just like what I told you about if you make the sign of the cross over yourself or if you dip your fingers into the baptismal font, there's the, the sense of, you have five fingers, so how do you use five fingers to speak something that is true about your Lord and about Scripture? Well, five is three and two, so three fingers for the Trinity, two fingers for the two natures of Christ, God and man. And this hand of blessing is the same thing. How many fingers are standing up? Three. How many fingers are down together? Two. So there's three fingers up in the name of Jesus, this physical name. Who is Christ? He is Jesus Christ. He is part of the Trinity, but he is also God and man, sort of like how you confess in the uh, Apostles' Creed. Uh, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from all eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. That's all being confessed in this as you are being blessed with the name of Jesus. Thank you for letting me look at this. Now, everyone has a part to play today because we have a lot of scripture to look at really quickly and I don't have time to go through all of it, because we, we kind of have to scamper today if we want to get through everything I want to get through. So, I'm going to start rattling off some passages, and everybody can take one 
and we'll just kind of go that way so we make sure we touch on them all. I'll take the first one from Exodus. The second one is Numbers chapter 6, 22 through 27. Who's going to do that? Okay. Okay. Numbers what? Numbers 6, okay. 22 through 27. Second Chronicles 7, 13 through 16. Who's going to take Second Chronicles? Second Chronicles what? Second Chronicles 7, 13 through 16. Next, Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Who's taking Revelation? Okay, we're just going around. Revelation 14, verse 1. Comes to you. <laughs> Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Brian. Revelation's the last book of the Bible. You're well, at the opposite end. Are we supposed to read this? Yes, if you would. Well, so. I can't hardly see it. <laughs> <laughs> I got glasses, uh, but reading glasses. You've got the easiest one, though, because you only have one verse. Yeah, I know, but. If you need a bigger one, I can run and get one for you. Okay. <laughs> all right. Here's the first one from Exodus. We're just, I'm just going to rattle all these off, and then we're going to talk about why they're important and what they all have in common. Exodus 3, 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Okay. Numbers chapter 6. Chapter 6 was 1. 20. 22 through 27. Okay. Yes. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, uh, Speak up unto Aaron and unto his son, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his con uh, countenance, uh, um, countenance, countenance yeah. upon thee, and give thee peace. And they shall put the name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Yes, great. Hey, nice. King James. I like it. <laughs> okay, from Second Chronicles seven thirteen to 16. Uh, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people... If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. Good. Revelation 7, 1 through 8. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from 
the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay, and you actually, that's actually where you can stop. You don't have to read all of the tribes. Okay, Revelation 14, 1. Can you do it? I, I don't know, I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you got to get it out. Yeah. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the, stood the Lamb, and, boy, I've seen this one. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Good, yes. Okay, and lastly, Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Yes, good. Okay, so this is the million dollar question for the day. You have heard all of these passages, which I picked for a very specific reason, only one very specific reason. The million dollar question is, what is the reason? What is important about all these passages? What point am I trying to make? What do they all have in common? There's one really big thing that they all have in common. I'll let you think about that for just a second. Use them in the liturgy? Okay, we use them in the liturgy. That's good. Uh, in fact, the passage from Numbers is the ironic benediction, which is how every service ends. So you're not wrong. There is liturgical use involved with all of these things. But there's something deeper and even more important than that. What are they all about? Isn't this fun? Resurrection. <laughs> Okay, there's resurrection, yes, yes, yes. But they're all about the name. Yes! I say that, his name. It's all about the name. The, they ask what the name of the Lord is, and he tells them, and he says the name will be the covenant. 
The name is put on the people. The name is the thing that sets the people apart. And Revelation is really great for all of this too because they come and how do they know who the Lord's people are? Because they see that they have the name of the Lord. So the name is important when we say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is something that really grinds my gears. If you go to visit churches and the pastor is kind of flippant about the beginning of the service and he says, well, now we're, now we, we're going to just, we're going to start the service in the name of the Father or we make our beginning in the name of the, it's not a beginning. Saying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is not a beginning. It is the start of our service, but it is not us making a beginning. Sort of like saying amen is not just the sign that something is done. When I say, uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord, and everyone goes, amen, you're not saying amen because you say, oh boy, the prayer is done, now I can get to my food. You're saying amen as a confession that accompanies the prayer. Everything that I prayed for I say amen to with the sure and certain confidence that what I have prayed for the Lord has heard and that he will answer. Amen is always the voice of faith, which we'll talk about in a while towards the end today. Amen is the voice of faith, a voice that agrees with the Lord. But the invocation, see we're still here at the beginning of the service, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is just that. It is invoking, calling upon a name in accordance with the promise that has been given. And the promise of God, especially as it relates to his name, is always a promise of blessing, gift. Remember when I told you that all theology is gift? I wasn't joking. Everything in theology, everything in scripture, everything in the liturgy and in the church and in how she functions is all about Christ who gives. A God who gives. And that's one thing, by the way, that sets Christianity apart from any other religion. In any other religion of the world, it's man who gives to God. But in Christianity, it's God who gives to man. It is unique as a religion that is full of people who don't do anything but receive from God. A God who is willing to get his hands dirty and come and take care of his people. It's all about the name. The name of Jesus, this blessing, this gift of the name. When the gospel gets on you, and the question is, where does it get on you? First of all, where does it get on you? Where does the name get on you? On your forehead. Okay. But I... In baptism. Yes! Okay. In baptism! <laughs> In baptism, think about the whole baptismal liturgy. Because one of the things you say, receive the sign of the cross both upon your forehead and upon your heart to mark you as one redeemed by Christ crucified. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the name. The name of God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh... Then there's the, the christening, which is, that's what I do. Not every pastor does that. Or, but with the, the chrism, the oil of the chrism, that sweet-smelling oil, which is put upon your forehead, the seal of the covenant, the mark of the working of the Spirit in oil, the anointing. That chrism is the Christing, the Christing oil. That's placing the oil of uh, anointing upon you. 
The Lord anoints your head with oil, your cup overflows. Here it is, the work of you now becoming a king in the kingship of Christ, all in the name. Uh, what baptism is, is kind of like, people say it's like a holy tattoo. And one of the things that I like is uh, the Romans would do this to their soldiers. They would give them a sacramentum, which sounds an awful lot like sacrament, the sign, the mark of who they are. They would give them the tattoo that says you are part of the Roman legion so that when they're all out fighting and you look, you see the mark and you say, oh, those guys are with me. I'm not going to fight them. It's an identifying marker. Now, tattoo is fine for baptism, a holy tattoo. Uh, you can't wash it off. Once it's there, it's there. It sticks. That name is on you. Now, you can reject the name. You can run away from it. But the name is on you once it's on you. The example I like to use, though, that I think is slightly better is the brand. It's like when you brand cattle. That's what baptism is. Now there's the brand on you. It's the mark that's in your very flesh, the thing you cannot take off, the thing that is there forever, that even in the resurrection, you're going to look around and see everybody and recognize them for a few things, but one really big one is the brand that they have. Like Roman soldiers in the army, you're going to look around and you're going to say, hey, these are all, these are all with me. We're all part of the same group. We're, we follow the same general. So uh, the name is, is very important to you. It is extremely important. You bear the name of, of God. And to have a name is to have power. Also, that's why we pray in the name of. And Christ says, when we talk about prayer, we'll talk a whole lot more about this. This is just in passing. But anything you ask in my name, there is power with the name. Now you have the power of the name in baptism. Uh, you are dead who are made alive. A new name is given to you. There used to be a custom that you wouldn't know what a child's name was until baptism. So when the question is, how is this child named? That's when they are named, because who they were before doesn't matter. In fact, Luther, this is, this is what I've heard. I didn't, I've not actually read this, but I like it so much that I repeat it. Luther reportedly uh, sent out invitations for his children's baptism that said, hey, come and celebrate us with us as we turn a little pagan into a Christian. <laughs> but that's what it is. Everybody who comes to the font is a pagan, a big pagan or a little pagan, an old pagan or a young pagan, but you're all dead pagans and you come to the font so that you can leave the pagan life behind. You're all like Abraham when you come to the font, or Abram, his name wasn't changed yet, of Ur, of the Chaldeans. Come out of this land and go to a different land that I will show you. Here it is. Take my name. This is my guarantee. It is my promise. It is who I am, and it is my power. And you have it. You're marked by it now. Who's going to touch you now? You've got the name of the Lord on you. Hey, now, the answer to that question is a lot of people are going to try and touch you <laughs> because being baptized uh, essentially puts a target on your head now. If you stand for something, it means you have to stand against something else. You have the brand of the army you are a part of, which means that there are other armies that you are not a part of, which we'll talk about further on in the class. 
Okay, so the gospel gets on you and it sticks. Uh, Jesus, you don't have to worry about whether he does a good baptism or not. He does. Uh, when the name's on you, it sticks. But here's the thing about the church and about the liturgy. There are reminders of the name everywhere. Why is the baptismal font at the rear of the nave? Do you know? It's not just for the aesthetic of how it looks. There is an actual reason for that. Because you enter into the church through the waters of baptism once and always. So one time gets you in the doors, and then every time you come back to that place, you come back by virtue of the waters of baptism that you have, by virtue of that mark that you have. So you walk through water to get in, and you walk through water out, because you live in that water now. There's a great uh, analogy, you know, uh, the Christians are often called little fishes. And one of the church fathers, and I don't remember who it was, I think Tertullian, said that a fish cannot live outside of a water, neither can a Christian live outside of water. You're all little fishes, you have to live in water. Now, obviously that doesn't mean we all have gills and swim around, but it does mean that you cannot live apart from the waters of your baptism. So you live in this water, and every time you come into the sanctuary to receive the Lord's gifts, you're coming in by virtue of and through that water. There's the font for you. Again, with water, but also with the number eight. So you're also reminded of new life and resurrection in the baptism. There's the invocation in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, calling upon the name of the Lord that he would hear our prayers, that he would give us all of his blessings, that he would serve us according to his promise. And who is us? All of the people who have the name, in the name, in and by and through this name that we now bear, we call upon you to come to us and give us all of the good gifts that you said you were going to give us and that we know you want to give us. That's the invocation. Not just the mark of, well, now it's time to begin. And you know it's time to begin when you hear the words, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a reminder in the benediction. Here's the name again, and the sign of the cross upon you. There's, uh, there's a lot of these signs that mark you as a child. The sign of the cross is a really important one, and it's one that I encourage you all to, if you don't already, to make on yourself in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And if you want to know what the right way is to do it, I'm not the guy to ask, because there are some ways, there, there are different ways to do it, but if you want my opinion on which way you should do it, you should go top to bottom, right to left. The reason why I say that is because when I make the sign of the cross, I go top to bottom, and this is to your right and left. So that when I make it, it's backwards to me, but it's right on you. So when this name is going on you, your hand traces the very name and touches where that name is touching. But if, now there's always an objection to making the sign of the cross because it's what? Too Catholic. That's what Catholics do. We don't do that. So I would invite you to uh, look at the small catechism, which 
Yeah, 320... 3.27. This is the stuff you're not taught in catechism class. All right. Section 2, Daily Prayers. This is what... Luther writes, how the head of the family should teach his household to pray morning and evening. Okay, in the morning when you get up, make the sign of the Holy Cross and say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, would you look at that? It's in the small catechism. Make the sign of the cross. First thing you should do when you wake up, make the sign of the cross. By the grace of God, you've made it through the night. And you pray that you would make it through the day. And you call upon God in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, according to the name that you have and the promises you have been given in baptism, you call upon Him to look over you for the whole day. And then when it's in the evening, when you go to bed, make the sign of the cross and say, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, because you're praying according to the name that you now have in baptism and according to the promises you have been given, that the Lord would watch over you through the night, and you also thank Him for the gifts that He gave you during the day. Okay? This is right here in the Catechism. I mean, this is just... If you want to talk about the, the most simple place where Lutheranism is found, this is it. Make the sign of the cross. So there's no law that says to do it, but it is a good thing to do, and I encourage you to do it. And uh, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing... In fact, uh, it's a very beneficial thing to do because it teaches. And there are lots of opportunities to do it. Obviously, any time there is the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is another opportunity to recall and to remember the realities of your baptism and that name that you have. It's not something that is uh, nebulous. It's not something that you can look at and say, well, yeah, there's a name and it's somewhere. I wish I knew where it was. No, it's concrete and it's personal. You have it, 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 you have it. You all have the name placed upon you. Anytime during the liturgy where there's little red crosses in the text, that's another opportunity here in the creeds and in the life of the world to come. Amen. There's an opportunity. Uh, there's one in the Lord's Prayer that isn't in the hymnal, uh, but uh, the, the custom in the church is, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because the Lord has, and He will continue to do so, according to the name that you bear. Uh, the words of institution, take, eat, this is my body. The mark is there. Now this is here because I make the sign of the cross over the elements there, but you're more than welcome to make the sign of the cross yourself. Uh, and of course, the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift, look upon you with favor and give you peace. That's setting two. That's not the right words. I don't care for those words. But there's the benediction. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Boop, boop, boop. Okay? So that's that. Now here's just a really good quote that I'm going to leave you with before we jump ahead just a little bit. And this is from Cyril of Jerusalem, who is a really uh, great father of the church. He has these little books called the Catechetical Lectures, which are basically what I'm doing right now giving you catechetical lectures, teaching you the faith. Let us not, therefore, be ashamed of the cross of Christ. But, even though another hides it, 
you ought openly to seal it on your brow, that the devils beholding that royal sign may flee far away trembling. Make this sign when you eat and drink. Sit down or lie down. Rise up. Speak and walk. In a word, make this sign on every occasion, for he who was here crucified is above in the heavens. Okay? You were dead, now you're alive, because you are with Christ, and Christ's name is on you. It is a fearful name that makes the devils tremble. Now, I'm going to jump ahead here to 1 Kings. And while I do this, I just want to highlight some of the things, again, that baptism does. Baptism is death before death in order to grant life. It is entrance and admission into the church. It is plastering the name of God on you. It is the gospel, of course, the touch of Christ. And in this touch of Christ, he puts his name on you and it sticks. Once it's on, you can't take it off. It never goes away. Which is also why it is better for you to never have been baptized at all than to be baptized and become apostate. Do you know what, it, what apostate is? Do you know what apostate is? Apostate is leaving the church, throwing away the faith, running away back to paganism from being in the faith. Then that means you have become apostate. That's what the word means. So it is better for you never to have been baptized at all than to do that. This is the example that I use. It's the difference between a virgin betrothed and a divorced adulteress. Then this is actually G.K. Chesterton's analogy, the difference between the two. Uh, neither one of them is married, but one of them is the worse off for not being married. Do you see the difference? The virgin isn't married, the adulteress isn't married, but the adulteress is worse off because she has been married and now is not. So that is sort of like the difference between being a pagan and being apostate. Not having been baptized at all is better than bearing that name and then rejecting it so that when the Lord comes to call you his own, you look at him and say, no thanks, I, I don't actually want this anymore, I'd rather not have you. It's worse off for you. Uh, whoever sins is a slave of sin. If you are dead in trespasses and sins, then you are a slave of sin. So what baptism does is it sets you free. You have a freedom in baptism you did not enjoy before. It doesn't mean you're not going to sin, but now you do have the opportunity to look at sin and to fight with it. Being a Christian through baptism, entering this new life, is not an easy life. I already mentioned you, you've got a target that you walk around with. But it also means that your life becomes a struggle. If you didn't know what was wrong, if you didn't know what good was, you had no knowledge and you lived in ignorance, that would be one thing. But now you're not living in ignorance. Now you know what sin is and you know where it is. And you also know that in baptism you are to run away from sin and run towards uh, Good. Uh, flee from evil. Don't touch evil. Touch the holy things of God instead. That's your life now in baptism. And it is a struggle because it's really hard not to touch evil things because it's always the stuff that you want to touch. 
It's really appealing. You're like the kid in the candy store and everything just looks so good. And that sign says don't touch it, but you know that you really kind of want to. You want to partake of the thing that is bad for you. Okay, so First Kings. Then Solomon stood before... This is chapter 8. I'm at verse 22 if you're following along. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, Lord God of heaven, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, uh, if only if your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear in heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Where is the name of the Lord? It is on the temple. That's important. The name of the Lord is... This is why the sanctuary is a different space, by the way. Why, during Advent and Lent, I'm even more adamant about not visiting and chatting when you go into church, because this is a different place. The narthex, that's a fine place to visit and chat, but the sanctuary is a special place. It's like it's the temple. It's, it's a holy place. When you walk in there, things don't work the same way. The cardinal directions don't work. Your compass doesn't work. Time doesn't work. This dimension doesn't work. Everything breaks down and is reordered, repurposed, and redone in that sanctuary because everything in there bends the knee to the Lord. And in there, you are as close to God as you will ever get in this life. You are as close to heaven as you will ever be able to get in this life. It is, a, it is a holy place. It is the place where the name of the Lord dwells. The name of the Lord is on the temple. It says that the Lord is here. That even though heaven and earth cannot contain him, he is willing to be contained within this place where he is. And it says that the people who are in here bear his name. And you bear his name in baptism. That's really important because you also are temples. Surely in temples made with hands, God the Most High is not dwelling. Indeed, he is not. But he does dwell here. But he has not built the temple of Jerusalem that he stays static in one place. He has now made the flesh of man his temple as well. He enters into the flesh. He's born of Virgin Mary. 
He redeems the flesh of man, and you bear the name of God in your own bodies, which St. Paul says are temples of the Lord. See how all of this starts to tie together? All, everything in the Bible points to these things that we talk about here. It really makes the Bible a lot less complicated when you realize that it's really only saying one thing over and over and over and over and over again. The Bible is nothing but a big broken record. That's really good. You know, Luther says, I preach justification every single Sunday because every single week my people forget it. <laughs> How much more does the Lord need to keep saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again for a people that continue to forget and doubt and turn away? You see this? So you have the name. It's on you. It does things. You are a temple. Now, um, wherever God puts his name, that means that's where he is, that's where he lives, and that's where he takes possession. So if you are somebody who has the name on you, it means that who is dwelling in you? The Lord. And that you are also his possession, which isn't to say that you are some item that he puts on a shelf in a dusty collection room and say, well, look at this new thing that I have acquired. To say that you are his possession means that he has taken you away from another place and that he is the one who looks after you and cares for you. Uh, so, here's now the question. Why, then, does the church baptize? And uh, that's a good question. There are two answers. The first answer is in John chapter 2. I'm not going to read this whole narrative because we're running out of time, but it's the wedding of Cana. The first 12 verses of John chapter 2. You know this. There's a wedding, and they're all there, and they run out of wine, and they come to Jesus. Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, why don't you do something about this? We're out of wine. Uh, which, by the way, this is a real tough uh, little account for anybody who says that Jesus never drank wine and didn't care about it and that no Christian should ever drink any kind of alcohol because Jesus has a whole bunch of people at a wedding who are well drunk. That's what, that's what it says, well drunk. And that is kind of a polite way of saying they probably don't need any more. I think they're sufficiently enjoying themselves at this wedding. And perhaps even in the morning they have enjoyed themselves so much that they won't remember how much they enjoyed themselves. Uh, don't ever enjoy yourselves that much. That's not fun. Okay? I had a professor at the seminary once who said, do you want to know what hell is? Hell is a hangover that lasts for eternity. <laughs> Which is why heaven is so great, because in heaven you get to drink of the best wine that is offered, and you never have to worry about waking up the next morning. You just get to eat and drink and be merry, and that's what it is, the great feast of the wedding of the Lamb and His kingdom. It's great. Drink all, drink all the good wine. And it all comes from this in John chapter 2. All these folks that are well drunk, wink, wink, and he says, well, okay, here's all this new wine, and it's better than the wine they've already had. So he gives a bunch of people that don't need it more. And that's kind of the M.O. of God. He gives to people in abundance. They probably didn't need that much more wine, but he gave it to them. He gives, and when he does, he gives in abundance. So here is 
really the verse that we're looking at, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said to her, that is his mother, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, I've not come on earth to turn water into wine. I've not come on earth to manage weddings. I've come to save mankind. And she says, Whatever he says to you, do it. This is not a one-time thing where Mary, all she says to the servants of the house and then we never have to pay attention to those words ever again. Wrong! This is going to be, this is kind of a spoiler alert. The next Facebook little image, every now and then there's a picture that comes with some quotes on the Facebook page. The next one's going to be a quote from Luther about how the mother of God is your mother as well. So uh, when Jesus says, hey, behold your mother, he also talks to the church. Hey, y'all of you, behold, the Blessed Virgin is your mother too because you are all in Christ. His mother is your mother. So when she says, whatever he says to you, do it, she's not just talking to servants, she's talking to you. Why else do you think an evangelist sees this as su such an important thing to include in his gospel? Hey, this is something the whole church is going to read. This is important. Whatever he says to you, do it. That's Reason number one, why the church baptizes. Because we have been told, whatever he says to you, do it. And what does he say to us? Well, if you look at, so there's two places to look. First is in the catechism. In baptism. Which is... It's a lot of wine. And they took six of them. See, when he gives, he gives in abundance. <laughs> I'm not joking. That's what heaven's going to be. There's, it's a wedding celebration that has no end. Um, baptism is not just plain water, but it is the water included in God's command. Whatever he says to you, do it. Included in God's command. Which is that word of God? What is that command? <gasps> Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why does the church baptize? <laughs> because Jesus said to do it. Now, can Christ save apart from baptism? Sure. The question is not, can he do it? The question is, how does he choose to do it? And the answer is, Christ has chosen to save through baptism, which is why he says baptism is such an important thing. The church says baptism is a really important thing, but we didn't just make it up. And, well, hey, you know, we'll splash some water on some people. We'll, we'll make bank on that. Uh, Christ says it's important, and the church, faith, the baptized, follow Christ where he leads. If he says it's important, then you say... Amen. It's important. Okay? So the command is, hey, go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, really, the command is, make disciples. People get caught up with this the so-called Great Commission. Uh, firstly, because they think that Jesus is talking to everybody when he says that. And he's not. And secondly, they think that it's really important that they go out. Well, Jesus said, go out. It's not what Jesus is saying, though. The most important verb is make disciples. And he's talking to the apostles. What is your job, all of you apostles, you men who I have ordained into my office? What is your job? What is your, the job of the church? It, your job is to make disciples. 
So the question is, how do you make disciples? Well, by baptizing and by teaching. So when, when the confessions and when I talk about the job of the pastor being to preach, teach, and administer the sacraments, that's what it is. I'm making disciples and sustaining disciples by the sacraments. But uh, making disciples, teaching, baptizing, this is what we do. Uh, so to be a disciple then, to be one who is baptized and who is continually fed, means that you sit in the dirt at Jesus' feet. That's what it is to be a disciple. Your job is to sit in the dirt at Jesus' feet and to listen when he talks. And when he gets up and he goes somewhere, you follow him where he goes. That's your job. It's pretty fun. You know, it's a lot less work for you when you think about it that way. What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, I'm just going to sit and listen to Jesus. I'm going to do what he says. That's it. That's all i got to do. That's what it means to be a disciple. It doesn't mean that you're not thinking. To say, sit in the dirt, doesn't mean you sit the <laughs> slack-jawed like some kind of dummy. It means that you are thinking because you're constantly hearing and meditating upon what words Jesus gives you. But... You're thinking about things that are different than what the rest of the world thinks about. The rest of the world, especially now, helter-skelter, we've got to get everything ready for Christmas, got to do this, got to do that, got to do this, woo, 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 woo. what are we going to do? Thinking about everything, worrying about everything, except sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to what he says. So the world thinks about different things than you do. And that's part of being at the foot of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus, is, hey, you're not the same as everybody else. You're different. You're set apart. You're taken out of that old life. You're put into a new life. You have a new identity. You've got a new name. You've got a, a brand. You have a Lord now. Okay? So uh, then the question is, okay, so the church is going to baptize. That's fine. The church is going to make disciples. We're going to baptize. We're going to teach. That's what we're doing right now. How many of you are baptized? Hey, all of you. And now that you're in, we're teaching. You see how this works? And teaching is a lifelong thing for the Christian. You're constantly living. You're constantly in the hospital getting your medicine and being taught. The church is going to teach you in Christ and help you live. That's what the church does. Okay? But who does the church baptize? Though? This is a really great thing. Who do we give it to? Well, all nations. This is a handout we don't have time to look at. In fact, we probably don't have to... This is an infant baptism as a Christian norm. Because I want you to see, when we say we, that Christ wants everyone to be baptized, He does not say, everybody but babies, because they can't talk. He says, everyone... Baptism is not your decision, it's Christ's work on you. And if we really believe that, as the church has historically from the very beginning, you're dead in trespasses and sins, you're made alive in Christ through baptism, that name put upon you, then the infant is just as much dead as you who are an adult. The infant is just as much in need of salvation as you who are an adult. It, is nothing to, it has nothing to do with personal testimonies or confessions of faith or ages of accountability. Anybody who's had a child knows that child gets accountable pretty quickly. At least that's my opinion. It didn't take long before my little girl knew when she was doing something she wasn't supposed to do and did it anyway because she wanted what you could give her. And she wanted it right when she wanted it. And she wanted it the way she wanted it. 
St. Augustine says that the, the strength, that an infant is very strong, but the strength of an infant doesn't lie in its body, it lies in its will. And an infant strives to assert its will over yours. That infant is not a dummy. That newborn baby knows exactly what they are doing. So if, <laughs> if you are dead in your trespasses and sins as an adult, you can be sure and certain that that child is accountable and is also dead in their trespasses and sins. And if baptism really does give what the Lord says it gives, and if that name really does what the Lord says it does, why on earth would we withhold it and wait for the dead person to offer us an invitation to help? Why does Christ wish to wait for the dead man to ask him to raise him up? He doesn't, and he won't. The only qualification for baptism is that you are dead. Are you dead? Great! Come on in! That's your requirement. Okay, so this is, these are all arranged in chronological order. So you can see the early church. Now the first quote is from 180 AD. There are other quotes that are even earlier than that. And of course, Jesus says, let the little children come to me, which doesn't just mean let them come be dedicated or let them come receive a blessing. It means let them come to me. Where is Christ? Okay, so this is the one that I really like. This from Hippolytus, the Apostolic Traditions. This is the second quote. Baptize first the children, and if they can speak for themselves, let them do so. Otherwise, let their parents or other relatives speak for them. When a, when a parent or a sponsor speaks for the child, those words are not spoken because we don't know what the child would say. They are spoken because we do know precisely what the child would say. The child would say exactly the words that the parents are speaking, and the only reason they speak them is because the child doesn't quite know how to say a word yet. If the child knew how to say a word, then they would say those words and we wouldn't have a problem. But the infant doesn't know how to say those words, so we'll say it for them. Okay? So these are just some quotes I entrust to you. Uh, now, there's a benefit of baptism, of course. Baptism means that you are never alone, you're never unloved. Remember, if the name of Christ is on you, that means that's where Christ dwells. If you're baptized into Christ and you are now in Christ, then that means that Christ is as close to you as your own flesh and blood. Okay? So you're never alone. You're never unloved, which are two of the biggest, uh, two of the biggest sources of discouragement in the world. People feeling like they are either alone all the time, or that nobody loves them or cares about them. And a lot of the problems in society and in individuals' lives stem really from those two root things, either individually or together. That I am, un I am alone or I am unloved. But in Christ you are neither. You are always with Him, and He is always with you, and He always loves you. The other benefit of baptism is that it makes you alive. Okay? And uh, then baptism becomes your primary attribute. So even when you die, and I'm preaching at your funeral, I don't say you were baptized, I say you, he or she is baptized, because baptism is not the event, it is the new life. Baptism takes place, but it is ongoing. You are baptized, not 
were baptized. It's a new life. Uh, and baptism saves. Okay? This is 1 Peter 3.21. Not everybody likes to say that this says what it says, which is why I'm giving you this. And I'm giving this to you with the warning, don't try to be more religious than Jesus. If Jesus says something to you, say amen to it. Don't be more religious than Jesus. Don't be a Pharisee. Okay? This is, I don't know if any of you have ever had to do this, diagramming sentences. You had to do that. Uh, <laughs> but here's just the diagram. I did not do it. I don't even remember how to do this. And I didn't enjoy it while I was doing it. But uh, this is the diagram of First Peter that another pastor did. And the, you see the main sentence is, Baptism saves you. This is the thing that baptism does. It does something to you, and the thing that it does to you is it saves you. It makes you alive. It brings you in. It gives you the name. It creates faith. Um, and the mode of baptism doesn't really matter so much. There are some elements that the Lord says have to be present for a baptism. Do you know what those are? I mean, think about the catechism. What is, the, what is baptism? It is not just plain water, but it is the water included with God's command and combined with God's word. Everything you need to know is right there. So it means you have to have... There's, there's three things you have to have. Two of them I know that you know. The mode of baptism. How does a baptism happen? What's the first thing you need for a baptism? Water. water, yeah, okay. You need water and you need the word. The, word. the word. Yeah, very good. The water and the word. A little splash in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But you need something else too. Because who does Jesus give that so-called great commission to? I said it just a few minutes ago. He's not talking to everybody he's talking to. No. The apostles. So you need an apostle as well. To have a baptism, you need an apostle, you need a word, and you need water. And luckily, you have an apostle because you have someone who bears the apostolic office, which is really just Christ's office that he gave to the apostles, that they gave, that they gave, that they gave, that they gave, that they gave. That they gave. So you need the means by which the Lord works, earth and through which the Lord works. You have an apostle who has the command and the directive. The Lord says to him, hey, this is your job, go do it. You have water and you have the word. So what else matters then in baptism? You've got word, you've got the apostle. What matter what else matters? This is not this is not a trick question. <laughs> I am known for those, but this is not one of them. <laughs> Nothing. You you have everything. Nothing more matters. And the reason that I say that is because I want you I just want to beat into your heads that baptism is not the thing that you do. Which means that 
it's not a bunch of hoops that you have to jump through, and if you fail to jump through one the right way, then all of a sudden the baptism doesn't work. Do you have an apostle? Do you have water? Do you have the word? Then you have a baptism. How much water do you need? Gallons and gallons and gallons, or a drop, as long as there's water. Well, where does it take place? It can take place right here at the font. Take place down at the river if you want it to. Anywhere there's water, anywhere there's an apostle, anywhere there's words. Or the office of an apostle. Uh, how does it happen? Well, it can happen by sprinkling, or it can happen by immersion. The point is not to say that if I do it one way, it's not right, and if I do it the other way, it is right. The point is to say that the Lord works through water and the Word and His office. He's given it for that purpose. So if it's a splash, it's a splash. If it's an immersion, it's an immersion. Is there water? Is there Word? Then, bada bing, bada boom, it's still a baptism. It doesn't really matter. Okay. So here's just a fun little quote. Baptism doesn't actually do anything, but if you don't do it the right way, the nothing that it doesn't do doesn't happen, so you need to do it again so that nothing that it doesn't do does happen, is one of the stranger theological positions in Christendom. <laughs> Let me read that again. One more time. Baptism doesn't actually do anything, but if you don't do it the right way, then nothing that it doesn't do doesn't happen, so you need to do it again so that the nothing that it doesn't do does happen is one of the stranger theological positions, which is basically the funny way of saying baptism isn't anything but a symbol, but you have to make sure you do that symbol the right way or else the symbol doesn't work. Even though it doesn't give you anything anyway, you still have to make sure you do it the right way. Which is a fun way of poking fun of people that say, well, baptism only works if it's by immersion, because the people who say that are also the people that say baptism doesn't save you. It's just, uh, you know, the sign that you love God, but it doesn't really do anything. Well, then why does it matter how we do it? Well, because that's the way they did it. It isn't the way they did it. Why does it matter? Do you see this? It's just silly to get wrapped up in all of these hoops and checklists and everything when you know concretely from the Lord, baptism is water and word through his office in his church, making alive. That's it. That's, it really is as simple as that. And uh, saying it's, a, it's a symbol. It doesn't do nothing. That's what some people say. That it's just a symbol or a sign that doesn't really do anything. Or it's your way of showing God that you love Him. Or that you're obeying. I'm not doing anything in baptism except for obeying the Lord. Baptism doesn't really do anything, but I'm going to obey Him because doggone it, He commanded that I better do this, but I'm going to wait until I'm sure and certain that I'm ready to do that so that I can sit up on the slab and say, hey, would you please uh, put those paddles on me? I'd appreciate it. Even though I don't believe that doing that is going to put paddles on me or do anything cha that changes me. And then if I don't feel like it's working, I'll just go back and do it again and again and again as many times as I need to. When the Lord puts his name on you, it sticks. Don't be more religious than Jesus. If he puts his name on you, it works. That's why we say in the Nicene Creed, believe in one baptism. Because what Jesus does, he does well. He does all things well. Okay. Uh, so baptism then makes you disciples. Here's the last thing. Disciples have faith. Baptism is received by, creates, and strengthens faith. What does faith look like? This is just a handout for you to take home. This is what faith looks like. If you want the simplest 
the, the short, 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 short version. What is faith? Faith is love. Faith is love. That is the, the simplest version, uh, the most watered down that I can tell you. What is faith? Faith is love. So faith in Christ is the love of God and all the things that God gives, and therefore it obeys Him, it trusts in Him, it follows Him. And then if faith is love, what does faith do? Faith agrees. Faith is love, and faith agrees. Which is why we say, Amen. You agree. You say, like the Blessed Virgin Mary, Ah, let it be unto me according to your word. Amen. That's the voice of faith. What she says, you say. Particularly apt example for this time of the year. Let it be unto me according to your word. Amen. Amen. Okay? Any questions? That's a lot. You've done a lot. But we're set up for success because when we come back, we are out of the invocation. We'll be talking about confession and absolution. We're moving ahead. We've spent three weeks just on In the Name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay? But this is, everything matters here. Everything matters. Any questions? Baptism does do something. Yes. <laughs> Baptism does do something. Well, you just kind of make me think. Baptism don't do anything. It's just a symbol. No, that's not what we say. Okay. I'm trying to make the point that we say the exact opposite of that. Baptism does do something. I got, it. I got a question on baptism. Sure. Okay. <laughs> With what you were just talking about, I, I can think of some friends that believe that direction. Sure, we all can. <laughs> okay. We don't baptize. If you've been baptized, you don't have to be baptized again. In most cases. Okay. What if they were in that situation and then they come to the Lutheran Church? Would you rebaptize? If they had already been baptized? Yeah. No, I but wouldn't. It, but it doesn't mean anything when they did it. Was it done right? As I don't know. <laughs> Well, were they baptized with water? Were they baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It's not my job, if those two elements are present, to say that the Lord didn't do His work. Because if I say that when the Lord gives you His name, when the Lord touches you with His gospel in holy waters, that it doesn't stick, that's not, I'm not going to say that. It's not my job to look at it and try to pick it apart and examine it. If someone says, I was baptized with water, I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I don't care what their background is, the baptism still works. Because it isn't your work. It isn't, it isn't you know, the apostolic denomination's work. It isn't whoever's work, but the Lord's work. So the baptism is still valid, sort of like what we say about the body and blood. It's still the body and the blood, which is why we practice closed communion, because... If it really is the body and the blood, it doesn't matter whether you believe it is or not. It is. So baptism is effective. Whether or not you believe it is effective doesn't stop Christ from doing His work. I don't think I've ever been to a baptism that, in that situation. But how do you know that they, they did it right? They did it in the Holy Spirit. And you... I, if they say, I was baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and I was baptized with water, then I take that yeah. at face value, and I okay. say, then that is a baptism that is 
effective. The Lord has done his work on you. Now, if someone doesn't know that they were baptized, they say, well, there's no record of it. I don't know if I ever was. I always assumed that I was. Then in a case like that, the church may make an exception, and even if they had been baptized, might baptize them for the sake of their own conscience so that there is something that they can actually look to with certainty and say, yes, I know 100% for certain that I was baptized. The other exception that the church would make typically in, in re-baptizing is if you weren't baptized with one of those elements present. If there is no water, then we'd probably... Like, if you're baptized with, I don't know, grape juice, well... There's water in grape juice. Well, <laughs> I try not to get too technical about it. The Lord said water... Make a stain. Well, so, what about mud hole? The, I'd baptize it. I'd baptize in a mud hole. You're talking about the yeah, Ethiopian I mean, unit? there's still water in the mud hole. There's still... I don't know sure. how much water there was in the mud hole. <laughs> well, if you wanna, but if you want to get really technical, there's water in everything, yeah. so we could just baptize with anything, right? So why is, why is, the, <laughs> why is the distinction water? Okay. So uh, in a, a mud puddle, that is still water. Grape juice? You don't drink, you don't say, I'd like a glass of water and pour yourself a glass of grape juice. They're not the same thing. There might be water in the grape juice, but for the sake of certainty and in accord with the instructions of the Lord, water is what we look for. So if one of those elements is not present, then we would, the church would baptize again. And one example that I have of that is one I've shared before. Um, a fellow that I overlapped with at the seminary came from the Methodist church, and he was baptized, but he was baptized excuse me, in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier, which is not the triune name. So he was re-baptized at the seminary as a seminarian because he was taking a class and realized my baptism wasn't in the triune name. It wasn't, I wasn't really baptized. It has to be the name of God because that name is being put on you. If it's anything else, I baptize you in the name of Doug, Sandy, and Judy. Well, you can say baptize all you want, but it's not the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is the, the, the words that Christ himself has given us and the words according to the apostolic formula. So the, that means that the, there's a lot of debate about, well, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're just baptized in the name of Jesus. Well, the apostles said, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they're the ones that learned from Jesus, who said, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I tend to do what my Lord says, because I don't really want to be more religious than Jesus. Faith is a simple thing. Sit in the dirt, listen, follow where he goes, love him, and agree with him. Say amen when he says something. Don't be more religious than Jesus. That is what is meant by the simplicity of faith. Not that faith itself is a simple thing, but that the simplicity of faith in what it does and how it lives is, hey, here's Jesus. Sit down and listen to him for a while. When he goes over there, follow him where he goes. When he dies, you die. When he rises, you rise. Listen to what he says, and when he says something to you, do it. If he says, eat some bread, you say, okay, I'll do that. Amen. Faith agrees because faith loves. Does that answer your question? Okay. Any other questions? All right. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.